Welcome to Solutions from the Huddle, powered by Collaborative Solutions Group. We're discussing meaningful business and life topics to add motivation to your life and value to your efforts. Our show is hosted by certified professional CSG coaches who are often hired for private coaching, corporate training, and speaking engagements. Now, enjoy the show. This is Solutions from the Huddle, and I am your host, Titus Bartolotta. Our show is powered by Collaborative Solutions Group. And uh, man, we are excited to do another fantastic episode. If, if you are listening to the show and it's your first time ever uh, and you're not really sure what to expect, let's make it real easy. We go source really smart, super brilliant people that have done uh, uh, fantastic things, spectacular things, uh, folks that have maybe gone ahead of where you might be, or maybe they've done what you've done and there's some collaboration and conversation, but we go and find great folks and we ask them to give us just a few minutes of their day to uh, share their insight and unpack where they've been and what they've done uh, to help add value to your life. If you uh, already listen to the show, like you're one of our loyal, amazing, wonderful subscribers. Uh, we like you better than the newbies. We just want to be honest. We just like you better. Thank you for coming back. We appreciate you guys. And thanks for inviting folks. Um, today's guest is really, really, really cool. I'm excited to kind of unpack his story and let him share with you guys some some really interesting things. You, you're going you're gonna to enjoy this one. Before we get started with introducing him, we start every show the same way. And we just do that in prayer. So we'll do it this time too. So Lord, we just ask that you bless the show, our guest, our sponsors, the listeners, just every aspect, let the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. All right, friends, we have uh, my new show, best friend, Tarek Fancy is on the program. Listen, he used to be the chief investment officer for sustainable investing at BlackRock, right? A financial services firm. Check this out with over 9 trillion in investments. Yes, that's a T. Okay. We're not talking about that small, low level billionaire kind of world. We're talking trillions. Um, and, and so after he did all of this great work um, with this firm uh, and he tried to make the firm green from the inside, he realized there was really no social impact happening, right? It was just a bunch of marketing. And so now he wants to kind of blow the whistle uh, about the greenwashing. And, and he founded a really beautiful company called Rumi. Um, and, and I want him to talk about that and unpack his experience at Black and Rock, how amazing and wonderful Rumi is and, and what's going on. So, uh, man, Turek, thank you for making time for our show today. Thanks for having me, Titus. I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I'm, I'm excited as well. Hey, tell our, our, our listeners a little bit about who you are, though, before we get into the details of some, some really, really interesting and fun stuff. Help us understand just who you are. Like, where'd you come from? I'm sure when you were four years old, you might've been playing with like Legos and race cars, not maybe so much creating this online learning juggernaut and, and dealing with such a giant firm like BlackRock. So where do you come from and how'd you get to this place? You know, it's uh, like, like everybody's story, right? It's a bit unique and in some ways circuitous, but I was born and uh, raised in Toronto, Canada. I was the first member of my family born here. My parents and my brother uh, and my grandparents and the family for generations were in Kenya in East Africa. And so they moved to Canada just before I was born. I grew up here, went to school in the States and have kind of sp spread my time living in a bunch of different places. Um, a lot of it in New York and uh, in California, actually. But, um, you know, my... Um, you know, I, I was always kind of interested in um, 
I should have tried Hollywood because, I mean, last name Fancy, right? Middle initial B, Tariq B Fancy, um, was all set for it. But instead, I got, <laughs> sucked into, I got sucked into finance after undergrad because, you know, just they have a way of showing up on the campuses, uh, especially in the States, and they kind of hoover you in if, if you've got good grades, but you're not really sure what to do next. So I did finance for a long time, you know, did banking, then was an investor at a firm um, doing turnarounds of bankrupt and distressed companies. Companies um, enjoyed it. It was challenging. I was good at it. Did it for you know over a decade, and then at one point I decided to to just do something completely different. Um, and it really came from the fact that I was really passionate about education. I've always been passionate about education as a cause, um, and uh, I'd done a lot of stuff in technology. I'd been a coder in, in high school. I'd done a lot of jobs in it. And so even when I was an investment banker, I started in Silicon Valley, right, doing tech banking because I understood the companies. And, um, and so I just took a plunge. It was actually after my roommate in business school when I was doing my MBA. He and I were really close. We were passionate about using our skills for social good. And that never happened because we just kept, kept you know, working in finance because it's, it's tempting and it hoovers you in. And then he contracted stage four cancer one day. And it kind of came really quick. And then suddenly he realized that you know, he had stage four melanoma, right? It's, it's more of like, it's a matter of your, um, your time that, rather than your chances at that point. And that pushed me to start Rumi. This is back in 2013. And it was something I was passionate about. It's social impact. It's purely nonprofit. It's 501c3. Uh, trying to build a Wikipedia of you know, free microlearning and deliver it to mobile phones everywhere. Uh, and so that pushed me off the diving board. I started Rumi. We grew it into a whole bunch of countries around the world, people in North America using it, people in refugee camps in the Middle East, just you know, something that, you know, because technology can make things cheaper and easier, you could see how you could you know, build a platform that allows anyone to learn for free from anywhere. And, uh, and that's what kind of found me, that's how I found my way back into finance again, because BlackRock, who's the largest, not just the largest investment manager in the world, the largest investment firm in history, um, was looking at doing impact and sustainable investing, right? Of like, you know, where you invest money and you make a good return and you do good for the world. Uh, sounds really alluring. Um, and uh, they tapped me on the shoulder and said, listen, you're an investor. You've done that from the ground up. We know you like that. You've also built social impact right from the ground up as a tech nonprofit founder, and uh, here's a chance to you know to merge them right to be able to do the investing stuff and create a lot of social and environmental value for the world. And then I started that role in 2018. So, what where did the pull for education come from? I, I in listening to that. I care about people. I like people. I get that. I hear that from a lot of folks. Some people start a lemonade stand. You know what I mean? Like what, how we help people is different. I get that. I, I don't know that I have to ask, why did you get into financing? You, I think you did a great job of unpacking the allure of it. Plus there's great income opportunities. Right. And, right. but, but where did the, I, I want to help people specifically this way. Like I even think I understand creating the technology ecosystem and platform as a way to deliver education in an affordable way. But still, it just brings the, the only thing that I'm, I'm trying to figure out is education of all the ways that you can help people. Was there a mentor? Was there a great teacher in your life? What, what was the pull to be an educator in this capacity? It's a really good question. You know, I, I think sometimes great ideas and new things are born out of two things. One, you have to have passion for it, right? A personal sort of push. And then I think that's not enough. I mean, that's great, but you also need something like, you know, a good idea, frankly, that you rationally believe in and you think, well, you know, because the passion is not enough. If the passion is enough, I'd be trying out for Manchester United, right? And, and failing. Yeah. You need to also like align it with something that, you know, you think you've got some skills or a good idea. 
And for me, the passion came from family history. So I mentioned my uh, parents are both born and raised in Kenya. Uh, my dad's family had six siblings, you know, uh, six kids, and my mom's had eight. So these are these are big family, bigger than um, you know what my brother and I are just just two of us now. But um, amongst my mom's eight siblings, all were really intelligent, right? Um, you know, the, a lot of them took advantage of education, right? A few of them became doctors, a few of them became engineers. But there was one of my mother's brothers who was the most intelligent of the lot, right? He was the one who seemed to have like a photographic memory um, and just, you know, had a very, very high IQ. Unfortunately, he's the one who never got an education because he had a physical disability. Um, and so he was a person with a wheelchair. And this is the 1960s in Nairobi, Kenya, right? So there's no sort of wheelchair accessible bus that comes and picks you up. And so in, in the end, he just never really got to get a formal education in the way that the rest did. Um, but, you know, he taught himself to read. He was brilliant. He was just, you know, he had all the, all the tools to have been someone you looked at and you thought, well, this person could come up with a great new discovery for humankind. Uh, and then wow. and sadly, sadly, and then years later, he had, he always had kind of medical complications and he passed away and that, you know, he was one of my favorite uncles when I was young. And um, that really pushed me to think about, you know, the fact that there are people out there, so many, right? I mean, obviously in places like Kenya, but also in Newark, New Jersey, and just really across the world, right? Who have all this talent, this innate potential, but they don't get to realize that potential unless someone, you know, they, they get that t- tutoring, that teaching, that, you know, that, um, you know, the, the tools to really realize their potential. And, um, and so that was the passion and the interest. And then, you know, the idea was that I had worked um, on an investment years earlier, this is 2005 timeframe, to bring basic mobile phones into poor communities around the world, right? So places like Kenya, where my parents grew up, you know, they didn't have landlines, right? Because, you know, we all had these landlines, and the, these, you know, rotary phones or whatever things you can ring, pick them up, ring them. They're not as good as cell phones, right? So mobile phones, you could walk around, you, you could do, you know, use it whenever. But um, we were going from something good to something great. We went from a landline to a mobile. But in places like Kenya and other parts of the world, they didn't have landlines to begin with because it's very expensive to build that physical infrastructure. And the real potential for them was that when they got mobile phones, they went from nothing at all to something great, right? It was, so it's what we call a leapfrog, right? They went straight from the having nothing to the latest, greatest tech that we were using. Um, and so I worked on investments into that and it seemed that at certain, a certain time, you can sort of implement a technology solution and leapfrog to go much faster. And that was the idea behind Rumi. We said, listen, there's a free digital learning revolution going on, right? Like I'm old enough to remember when encyclopedias used to cost a thousand dollars and like people would go and they'd knock door to door and sell them. And like, it's ridiculous now, right? I mean, all that stuff is available for free online, but the data shows that the people who have the most to gain from free learning online are usually the least likely to access it, right? And so that's the bridge that Rumi was sort of built to, to create was to say, how can we level the playing field so everybody has an equal chance to learn and it's all open and free? Yeah, we're talking with Tarek Fancy, uh, founder of, of Rumi, R-U-M-I-E. Uh, and really one of the things that I think is pretty interesting about the technology that you've developed, you and your team, is um, you talk about you talk about closing uh, the learning gap. And so when I hear that, like I'm a sports fan and this show solutions from the huddle, we started on ESPN. So we had to find a way to take personal professional development, which is what I care about as a business life coach, and then like make it fit in sports for the radio station. And so we came up with, with this particular name, but, but I, I think about every huddle I've ever been in, in sports, like when you're about to, 
hike the football or, or when you're the pitcher's mound, they all huddle up because we don't know how to get this guy out or whatever right. it is. And, it, and the common denominator in, in every one of these sports huddles um, is, is it's because there's some kind of a gap. Right. Like this, we look at the scoreboard and it's like, we're losing by two. (laughs) Like, okay, we have to do something different in order to close this gap and kind of come back. You watch in basketball when a guy gets a fast break and somebody is trying to close the gap, just try to outrun them. And sometimes he can't outrun them in a straight line. He has to take a different angle. Mm-hmm. He has to he has to go at a different angle in order to catch up just because of the physics of I'm, if we're equally fast, I have to go a slightly different angle in order to close the gap. It seems like um, you found a way to find a different angle, um, a different speed, a different trajectory, because closing the gap was really important. And in this case, it's not about winning or losing a game. It's it's about winning life. Um is that a fair unpacking? I mean, that's what I hear because obviously just w- what resonates with me as the listener uh, right now, even with you. That's exactly it. I, I love sports analogies also, so this is perfect. But um, but no, you're absolutely right, right? It's about thinking, um, how can we solve, because you're trying to solve a problem and you realize you can't go the traditional way or the traditional method. Because if we did that, we would say, hey, you know what the, you know, the model is that we should just like go and try to build the same classroom that we had like when I was in high school in the 90s, right? If we try to replicate that same classroom for everybody around the world, it's very expensive to do it, right? Because in North America, it's something like $10,000 per student per year, right? And, and, and what it costs, you know, if the tax, taxpayer, right? But the idea is that, you know, if as you get into less affluent communities, even in the US, right? Where, you know, the, the system is driven by local property taxes and this and that, you realize that you don't have those resources everywhere. And so you need to build a system that is really effective and allows people to realize their potential. But you can't necessarily, you know, you can't like replicate the, all the massive libraries and all these expensive things that we had back in the day. Because, again, for a lot of places, you can't, you can't, you can't do it. The resources aren't there. And so what technology allows you to do is to build something cheaper, better and faster. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, once you have a basic mobile phone, right, and you have some kind of Internet connection, it's actually fascinating. But your, the ability to receive information from a pure economic perspective is cheapest it's ever been, right? Because, you know, think about like sending a paper textbook to some faraway place. You, you know, you got to kill a bunch of trees, right? And then usually have high intellectual property costs. And then you print this whole thing and you got to ship it. And it's like, it's heavy as hell, right? And then, you know, it gets out there. You can't even update it, right? Whereas if someone's already got a mobile phone, you think, well, wait a second, like I can press a button. And it costs nothing to replicate bytes, right? I mean, and so suddenly they have the latest, greatest thing that anyone else is using, you know, even sitting in the middle of Palo Alto, right? You can, you can equalize the playing field. So they're all getting the same quality thing. It doesn't cost anymore. It's all personalized to the learner. And that's when you get to the point where you can actually start to level the playing field so that, you know, everyone gets a chance to realize their potential. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that, right? I'm a big believer in if we all had the same um, crayons, we would all be able to draw the same picture. And what would happen is the creativity and the artistic ability and our drive to be both creative and artistic would, um, would find itself on the paper through how we used the crayons that right. the guy next to us also has access to. So it really, it really gives us an opportunity to realize that potential. And um and that kind of takes me to the next question that I think you started to kind of unpack. And it's, and I'm sure the actual numbers are staggering, but the idea that folks would have access to crayons and then not color 
access to crayons and then not draw. Like you kind of unpacked. You, you, I almost heard frustration and you were like, we have more today than maybe we, we ever did. And yet studies show that people still don't even use it sometimes. And how do we, how do we win that war? Right. Cause let's say you're able to close the gap. Let's say you're able to even the playing field. So now it's really just, it falls into your drive, right. your wherewithal, like, right. And so if you take it, and for me, like this is business coaching one-on-one, like deal with the controllables, which is what you're doing. You're like, like I, I can't influence Scott to have more drive on Thursday mornings, but what I can do, I can take away all the excuses and I can, I can control this stuff and then it's up to Scott. Right. And so I love what you're doing, but how do you keep yourself fueled and not frustrated when you realize, even if I pull this off and you're already doing it, obviously, Scott has to still have drive to grab the crayons and color something damn good looking on the paper. Like, how do you deal with that? You know, it's, it's really interesting. It's a good question. Cause you know, at the beginning we sort of, uh, or I had assumed that the biggest challenge for access was, you know, a lack of ability to access it. Right. Because imagine if you're in a community that um, you don't have your own phone or it's a cheap one, or you don't have a good internet connection. Like a lot of people, even in America are very remote, right? So their internet connection in parts of Nebraska is not going to be, you know, as great. And so some part of it in the beginning that we tried to solve for was these physical limitations, right? Someone needs a device. How do you get them a device, whether it's a low cost one or a recycled device from our recycling partner, Eco ATM, Gazelle, right? Um, or it's, um, you could have, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, some something to get around a slow internet connection, so stuff works offline. Like it's just a, it's a technical, it's a technical barriers. So we solved that, and what we started to find this is interesting. The second turn of the crank of what we call internally Rumi 2.0 was that once we solved that, we realized that that was good, so you could bring it to people. But then you had a second challenge. The second challenge is that they need to want to use it, right? Um, because just because it's there doesn't mean that necessarily anyone you know. There's a lot of free learning online. People ignore much of it, um, not for any other reason than the fact that, you know, people have busy lives and there's other stuff that they feel like doing and then time runs out. And so what we started to realize was that to actually drive greater impact, because our only bottom line as a, you know, as a, as a nonprofit or 513 is to is educate people, right? It's to bring value to learners, right? That's our bottom line. And so we realized that um, we could get a lot more done like that if we started to actually understand the modern learner even better. So it's not just they have technology, they have a device, now they can use it. It's more like, how do they use technology? And how does it differ from the way people learn in real life? And because our primary delivery model is usually smartphones, right? Smartphones are tablets, mainly smartphones. Um, we started to realize people learn on smartphones differently than they learn on, you know, in a classroom. And they have shorter attention spans, right? They want things to be quick and easy. And they've been somewhat trained uh, to do that because of, you know, sort of the the addictive culture of social media and like, you know, sort of the dopamine rush approach of like, you know, you grab your phone, you get a dopamine rush to, you know, refresh Instagram. And so we started building out micro learning. And so we launched it right after the pandemic hit, right? Suddenly everyone is kind of like stuck at home, whatever. We've been working on it for a year or two because we kind of seen it all coming. So we launched this approach where people can learn in five or six minute snippets uh, on roomy.org, right? It's all, again, it's like Wikipedia, it's all open free. And when they, when they go through what we call a micro course, we call them bites. A bite is five or six minutes and it's made to be really engaging and interesting. So there's a formula behind it where, you know, you have memes integrated into it. You can have animated GIFs, you have little quizzes. And the idea is that like, 
you know, some ways, some people look at it and they're like, this feels a little bit like, you know, almost like a BuzzFeed sort of thing. But all the content is vetted. It's created by instructional designers and other experts. It's all got very clear learning objectives. It's just packaged in a way that people want to use it, right? So it's not like the teach. Like, you know, if you're in a classroom and, you know, you have to do what the teacher says, right? It's like a 60-minute lecture and they shut the door and then, you know, you know, you can't look at your phone. You can't jump out the window. But for most youth now, when they're trying to do stuff on technology, if they're watching a seven-minute video, right, because the school goes closed and they're sitting at home watching their bedroom, they get bored. I mean, and, and they'll get a notification in five seconds from TikTok saying, you know, it's time to watch some puppy videos or whatever. It's like, they're like me, you know, you probably click on it, right? Because their, their data is not junk, right? They know exactly what to hit you with and when. And so we realized that to compete with that, we needed to figure out how they were getting people engaged and mix that into our learning model so that you're engaged and interested in the learning. And then by definition, our impact, you know, in helping people goes up a hundred times because they use it a hundred times more. So that's really the, the approach we've done with micro learning. You actually get a dopamine rush from doing a roomy course, right? Cause you learn a discrete skill or concept. You get that in six minutes, which is the same time as an Instagram session. So, you know, you, 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 do, you do it, you're on the board, you're on the go, you're waiting for the bus, you're blah, blah, you grab it, you, you pull, you do six minute micro course, and now you're getting a dopamine rush from something that is in the aggregate good for your mental health, right? Over months and months of time, it's not going to do with social, social media is like increasing suicide rates, increasing depression. This is something different. You get a dopamine rush every time, but over months and months and months, you actually feel better, right? You have more skills, you feel more confident, that kind of thing. Yeah, I love it. Tarek. Doing big things with Rumi, R-U-M-I-E, is our guest today on this episode for Solutions from the Huddle. We want to take just a quick break here in the middle. We always try to make sure we pause briefly to say thanks to the brands that uh, stand with the show, that think that the concept is a good idea. I mean, imagine this. Go find someone as brilliant and smart as Tarek, who's making an impact in the world, and give them a platform to talk. And then allow folks to click on it and learn and be a better version of themselves after an episode. It's a pretty cool concept. And that's what we're doing here at Solutions from the Huddle. So if you want to learn more about the brands that support us, that stand next to us, uh, that help us do the things that we do here, um, please do us a favor. Just just pop over to team-csg.com, team dash csg.com click on the solutions from the huddle tab and you'll see companies like ms digital solutions and shepherd law you know health uh, big brands medium brands small brands but brands we believe in we wouldn't stand next to them if they weren't worth standing next to team dash csg.com you'll see all the brands you'll click their logo and go to their website and learn more about them the only brand that matters to me right now though is Rumi, R-U-M-I-E, an online learning platform that's free, that's accessible, that's easy for anyone that's listening and for anyone that's not listening, which means you could be a part of the change that you hope to see in the world. You just got to tell so, someone about this episode and let them know what Tarek and his team is doing in the world. Tarek, I want to keep uh, giving you space to talk about Rumi. I want to make sure that folks know that when they go to learn.rumi.org, uh, learn.rumie.org, that they can have all of this kind of at their fingertips. But I also wanted to have just a few minutes to kind of unpack BlackRock. Uh, again, you you brought up one of the largest, in fact, the largest in, in history, right? Um, investment firms. 
And so talk a little bit about maybe some behind the curtain stuff. You talk about blowing whistles, bringing attention, truth to power, all that kind of stuff. Um, I would love to just kind of carve out some space and tell us, you know, um, why, why you weren't able to take one of the largest juggernauts with probably more financial resources than they know what to do with and, uh, and not have them be a part of the, the adding of gasoline to the fire that you and your team are already cooking with. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, the BlackRock opportunity found me because, again, I'd sort of been mainly an investor and finance person, left and did Rumi out of passion for creating social impact, and then viewed this as being a merger of the two. And, um, and you know, in many ways, some of what's being done in like finance, they'll talk about green investing and socially conscious investing. Some of it is well-intended, right? I mean, you know, a good amount of it, people mean well. The problem is it just generally doesn't work. And it's a question a little bit of the mechanics of how Wall Street works, right? So let's go back to sports analogies a little bit. Competitive markets are kind of like competitive sports, right? So people will talk all this nonsense about a free market. That, that's, first of all, that, that doesn't exist. It's not such a thing as a free market. Every single market has rules, right? Um, and though, like, so imagine I start a business, right? Like there's rules around property rights, around hiring people, right? Around firing people, around, you know, can I pollute or dump, dump chemicals from my factory in the river? Like there are all these rules and they've been set up over, over history to protect this you know, society, right? So we don't get lead in, you know, the food at the grocery store, or the babysit that, seat that you buy doesn't like break apart in five seconds. And those rules keep society safe while allowing people to, you know, conduct business in a way that, you know, helps everyone, right? Creates jobs, creates innovation. Um, so competitive markets like competitive sports, right? You have rules. Within those rules, the players in finance are a bit like athletes on, a, on let's say, a basketball court, right? In the court, you're what are you trying to do? You're trying to score points, right? Now, you want to, you know, uh, you want to play clean, but mainly because the referees are going to throw you out of the game, right? Like, if you figure out you can punch the defender and then go do layup, like, it may be an easier way to do layup, but then that's why the referees exist, right? Because they have to keep the, the game clean. Um, and all those, all those rules govern a, a safe and competitive sport where everybody has one goal, scoring points. Competitive markets is the exact same, right? They have rules of the game. Everyone operates within those rules, right? And then they try to maximize one thing, and it's profits, right? Firms compete, and you're all focused on the bottom line. You're focused on profits. And so um, what's happened in recent years is people have started to create this narrative that like businesses can, you know, um, like when, when the play gets dirty, when stuff's bad, stuff's happened, the environment's getting polluted, you know, um, people are getting underpaid, like a whole bunch of things are happening at a business that doesn't seem good for society. Businesses have been arguing that good sportsmanship is the answer, right? They're like, no, 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 listen, you know, we haven't been great. We've been destroying the environment, but like from now on, we're going to do the right thing because we believe in good sportsmanship. And when I went in, I looked at the system, I realized their incentives are not. The biggest problem with finance is if their incentives are not the same as the public incentives. They're just going to do whatever makes them money and like create a whole mess that someone else has to deal with, which is what we saw in the financial crisis. And so pretty much they're out there and saying, good sportsmanship is great. You can rely on it. It's good for points. And I got in and I realized that you can't because it's like the biggest asset manager history. I'm looking at all the data and I'm realizing that capitalism today needs rule changes, right? In other words, you know, it's like a sport where good sportsmanship isn't working. What do you, what do you do? You know, you update the rules, right? The referees have to come in and start to update things. So you can't allow dirty play, right? You can't allow cheating. You can't allow all these things that make the game worse. And Wall Street, the last thing they want is regulation, 
right? That's the one, the one thing they'll always fight against, tooth and nails regulation, because they're afraid anytime the government comes in, it closes the loopholes that they use to make excess profits. And so they're pushing back now aggressively and trying to say, no, 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 like the answer is good sportsmanship, right? Like we'll do green investing and we'll, be, we'll do all these nice things. And of course, Wall Street finance has to be part of the solution, right? I mean, when you have $10 trillion, like there's no way we can fix the economy unless that's part of it. The question comes down to like, are you relying on people to voluntarily do the right thing, right? Which is good sportsmanship, or is it what's called mandatory compliance, which is the referees come in and they enforce it. And what I realized inside the machine was that you can't, I mean, it's never going to fix itself. You need regulation. You need, you know, it's the same with every every industry in our economy, right? If Facebook is doing the wrong thing, like we can't rely on Zuckerberg to do the stuff out of the goodness of his heart. It's, it's ridiculous, right? If companies are polluting, if they're underpaying workers, you know, we have referees and they're called the government. They just have done a tremendously poor job in the last few decades of like protecting the poorest and the, the most vulnerable. Well, well, let me let me ask you this. I mean, is it about regulations or is it about enforcement? Right. I mean, so I hear what you're saying. Like we need new rules. Um, And, and I tend to be this person who thinks um, I I deal with business owners all the time and business leaders all the time that say, this isn't working. Let's change it. Mm -hmm. And human humans hate change. Like they fight change. Right. We know that there's enough studies that show that most humans like a detour on your way to work frustrates you so bad. Cause you're like, I don't want to take Smith street. There's nothing wrong with Smith street, but it's not, it's not black street. And that's the street I go every morning. And so people hate change, but what's really interesting is that entrepreneurs and business leaders that tend to be more on the visionary side of the world, like people that want and results at a higher level than people that are less concerned with results are more interested in saying, let's change, right? So you have really these two-sided, uh, two extremes of a dichotomy, right? You, I hate change, never want to change, and let's change, maybe prematurely, mm-hmm. right? Like we didn't give the new employee enough time to see if he's good. He's been here four days. He ought to be a superstar. Let's fire him because he's yeah. not performing. So is it a matter of change, new rules, or is it a matter of what I'll try to tell business leaders all the time, Tarek, is like, did you agree to say, I'm going to wait this long. I'm going to make sure that everything's enforced. Every I is dot, every T, and then I'm going to measure along the way. And then based on a, you know, like that was, that was the whole scientific method when I was a kid growing up, like make a decision, stick to it, measure it, come to a conclusion, have adjustments, measure it yeah. to your hypothesis. So is it a, and that's a long-winded way to unpack this because I really want the listeners to kind of like hear two things. I want them to hear your answer. And I'm also preaching a little bit right here where I say, you know, you shouldn't give things too long or too short, but you can't even determine what too long or too short is if like you didn't all get together and get on the same page about what the rules of the game are. So like, are we, do we need new and different rules or like is part of it or like we just don't enforce what we got. Like who says that we're going to enforce the new rules when they come along? That's really what I'm, I'm trying to get you to answer two things. Do we need new rules and how the hell do we get folks to actually do what they said they're going to do? Yeah. Well, you're you know asking. I mean? Well, so uh, you're, you're, I mean, it's, it's really both, right? Okay. It's, not, yeah. I mean, it's not so much about more rules, right? I'm not, I mean, a lot of people here, oh my God, more regulation. They'll get afraid. Okay. First of all, it's not really 
more regulation, it's smart regulation. And secondly, I think the most important regulation is probably on large companies, not on small businesses, right? Because small businesses need rooms. They're not throttled in the early days, but large companies that are making excess profits and have a sort of winner takes all mentality, they're the ones that need new rules because they're operating at scale in ways that don't always help society. They're also the ones who are able to fight back against rules because you have so much money in the system that they have all the tools and the profits to lobby and frankly market and you know prevent anything that removes their advantage. But it's really kind of a combination of like, actually a good example, if you look at the financial markets, after the financial crisis, they came up with the Dodd-Frank Act, right? Which is sort of meant to like fix what happened in the financial crisis. Generally speaking, most of the people who care about financial reform will tell you that number one, they ended up got it got watered down to the point where, you know, half the rules that needed to be there were removed. So that's a problem, right? Because again, moneyed interests can, um, including the banks that didn't disappear, they got bailed out and then somehow still had tons of money to lobby against changing so that this wouldn't happen again. Um, they've they use a lot of power to like close any loophole to prevent the closure of loopholes where they were benefiting. And then on the, the other half, that even where there were rules, you know, and this is along the lines of what you're saying, there wasn't really enforcement, right? Because, you know, there was a hedge fund that blew up earlier this year called Archegos Capital that, you know, caused, you know, ripples in the financial system. It didn't cause anything to crash, but it could have. Um, and that could have been prevented if they just enforced the rules that were put in the post-financial crisis regulation. And so you get a combination of both of those things that lead to a situation where, you know, the referees need to be setting the rules and updating them regularly, right? They need to be watching and saying there can't mm. be loopholes, there can't be things that, you know, because the problem is if you have all these loopholes, if you have people cheating, in a sport, they would lose faith in the game, right? They just yeah. feel like it's not a good game. This is not, you know, why are we even playing it? Well, that's what's happening with capitalism, right? Like I just turned 43. The data shows that the majority of the people younger than me don't believe in capitalism, right? The majority of millennials don't believe in capitalism. The majority of Gen Z don't believe in capitalism. I don't blame them, right? Because they look at it and they say, our opportunities are far worse than the generations above us, right? They seem to squeeze profits out of the system every year. And you know, our opportunities are worse than, than for our parents. Meanwhile, the environment seems to be getting destroyed and they know they're going to inherit that, right? They're going to inherit that problem. And so you see younger generations getting more and more upset about a system that, you know, it, and I would tell you, it's not capitalism's not the problem. The problem is we've been led to believe that there's only one version of capitalism and this is it. And it's not, right? It's like saying only one version of basketball. And it's the one where, you know, Bill Lambeer kicks people in the face. Or, you know, like at some level, yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. oh, wait a second. Like, actually, we could just change that a little bit if you someone blows the whistle and you yeah. keep it clean and fair. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you know, I, I think that when we become rigid and, 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 and too firm, uh, to anything is the problem. When we were kids, they tried to help us understand this. Um, there was this revolutionary story called uh, Goldilocks and the Bears, right? Like, I mean, even at the youngest cradle of, of, of human development, like we try to get people to understand too much will give you a bellyache, not enough will will leave you malnutritioned, right? Like enough is what we, what we got to be shooting for. And, and, and I'm a big business guy. So, I mean, I, I, I like markets that, that, drive competition, that drive down pricing, that drive innovation, that drive people to realize that I can go be anything. And, and, and I find that some of the, the biggest, most patriotic folks in America tend to be these people that didn't start here. Like, like they come from other places and they're like, oh my God, you guys have something great. Please don't mess it up. Right. And so I think there's so many elements to be proud of, but to your point, 
the idea that we would just not improve upon something that's good is just ludicrous. I mean, the telephone, the car, like, I think that there ought to be this period of time. If we have to elect new officials every so many years, we ought to have every so many years, uh, a, a refresh, a 2.0, a rebranding a um, something that says this is the designated period of time where we unpack, relook at the rules and find out if this is what's best right now. Uh, but we don't. We're, we live such a reactionary life. If it blows up, then we'll do something about it. And I just don't know where that works in life personally or professionally. Wait until wait until the house is on fire. Then I guess we can look into a smoke detector system. Right. Isn't that silly? It's crazy, right? And unfortunately, the, that's the way a little bit the political winds work, right? Is that the regulators, I mean, they need to be far more aggressive about regulating areas where there's, you know, fraud going on or this or that. And they just sit around and watch it happen often. And then when it blows up, then the public gets so angry that the pitchforks are out and they're like, oh, sh- you know, we got to get someone, we got to basically, yeah. you know, basically make someone a scapegoat, right? And so, they go and they and someone's held responsible, but it, it doesn't undo what was done, right? Because every you know the whole thing's blown up now, and now you're going and finding someone who destroyed it. But the public has lost faith in it because a whole lot of people lost money, and you know revenge and all is nice, but like, but you know it doesn't really change the fact that you'd be better off if that didn't happen in the first place. And it wasn't just that one person or that one incident that we're led to believe, right? That's just the narrative. In sports, it's not you know if you talk to champions. And we've had Super Bowl champions on this show and NBA Hall of Famers. And what I've known about champions, the common denominator is they will all say the same thing. You missed the last shot. You lost it for your team. And that person will say, I take full responsibility, but we missed 43 shots tonight. Had we made some of the shots in the first quarter, had we not had that error, that foul, that fumble in like, like 40 minutes before the game was over. Right. It, it, it's not this one thing. It's a it's a collection uh, of things. And and um, and I couldn't agree more with some of the unpacking that you've done. Um, Tarek, thanks for being on the show, brother. I mean, man, what a what a treat. What a refreshing, wonderful conversation. Would you tell our audience as we land this plane? What are the best email addresses? What are the best websites? What are the best next steps? Uh, if the listener of this show wants to be further engaged, further connected with you and your team and your vision, or reap the benefits of what you're doing in this world, what are their next action items? So the first thing I would recommend people just check out roomie.org, right? R-U-M-I-E.org. It's all open. It's all free. It's all for your benefit, right? So try it out. And there's so many ways to get involved and help. And it's becoming the Wikipedia of you know free micro learning, right? So it's, it's really, you know, and it's volunteer driven, right? All the content's created by experts. It's vetted. Uh, so, you know, grows really fast and the community is growing fast. So check that out. And then otherwise, I'd say social media, you know, we're starting to get more and more, share more and more of the new stuff, the latest stuff. And so it's either Rumi Learn, right? And we'll share a ton of stuff there or I'm it's so, so fancy. That's my uh, so fancy yeah. was taken. So fancy was taken, but so, so fancy was open. So that's, I where, like I, that's where I am on social. You know, find, always find me there. Tariq Fancy, the creator of Rumi uh, Learn. Make sure you guys go take a look at that. Uh, Tariq, thanks for being my new best friend. I hope you'll come back and do the show in the future. Would love, love to. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Titus. Hey guys, Titus Bartolotta here with Collaborative Solutions Group. I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this episode of Solutions from the Huddle. If you want to hear more episodes and continue supporting our show, simply search for and subscribe to Solutions.
solutions from the huddle on any major podcast platform. Thank you again, and we hope you'll join us soon.